0: At a time of deep division in today's society, we must come together for humanity's sake. On Can We Talk 360, we strive to stimulate an authentic conversation on issues that affect all of us in an environment of tolerance. I am Eugene Pettis, attorney and community servant. Let's discover how there is strength in our differences and an abundance of possibilities when we stand together as one humanity. There's probably no greater issue that divides us than who has the right to vote. Since our general election a couple of months ago, that debate has grown toxic and more divisive. The timing is perfect to hear from our guests, who will help shape the path forward to protect our right to vote in Broward County and across the state of Florida. Meet Jervon Scott, the newly elected Broward County Supervisor of Elections. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me, Gene. So many people have asked, who is this guy who came onto the scene Uh, and garnered nearly 65% of the vote uh, from our Broward County residents, amassing nearly 600,000 residents who've invested their faith in you. So let's start with answering that question, who you are and how did you arrive at this pivotal point? Uh, Joe, as I have uh, looked at your background and read about you, uh, you have an interesting journey. So let's talk about your story. Tell us if you will, uh, where did you grow up?
1: So I am an army brat. I lived all over. Uh, I was actually, my my parents are Florida natives but they joined the military and moved off and they were stationed in Alaska when I was born. I don't really know much about Alaska because we picked up and moved when I was only six weeks old. And we lived in Missouri for a time. We lived in Germany for quite a while uh, as well as uh, Louisiana and Texas. Uh, before they finally retired. And they retired right here in Broward County, uh, where my mom taught and and, and ultimately retired from Broward County schools.
0: Uh, What did you take from all of those pretty diverse backgrounds uh, to end up here? What what experiences do you recall in your childhood? How did those places differ?
1: Uh, You know, what I say is interesting is that I've lived so many different places. And even in my own own journey. So I I actually graduated from high school in uh, Pensacola, Florida, and then went to West Point in New York, went to South Korea, uh, moved to Georgia, deployed to Iraq from Georgia, came back. When I left the military, I first settled in Philadelphia before moving back home here to Broward County. So I've lived a lot of places. And I say Broward County may not be the home I grew up in, but it's the home that I've chosen. And it's the home that I plan to keep for the rest of my life. And I've seen enough places to know that this is this is home. This is where I belong.
0: You mentioned your mom is retired. She was a long uh, time educator in the Broward County school system. Correct?
1: Yes, she was. Yes.
0: I, I bet she was an influencer in your life as it related to that educational foundation.
1: It did. Yeah, it did. You know, and I and I and I definitely feel like I'm blessed. I have two wonderful parents. Uh, who who raised me and my sister, well, uh, my, you know, my father was a military officer. So he really brought that, uh, well, he was an enlisted man in the military, but he really brought that sense of discipline into our household. And, um, and then my mom being a teacher was there was really this focus on education. But also she was a special ed teacher, which actually um, creates another dynamic to the situation. Because, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time with um, kids who have special needs. A lot of times when I was on summer break and and those types of things, I would help my mother out. And it just gave me an interesting perspective on how important it is to um, serve people who aren't as fortunate as we are and to, you know, make sure that, you know, that we understand that people struggle with different things. So, you know, being raised by somebody who was a special ed teacher and even worked with some of the most, um, uh, you know, severe disabled kids is a place here in Broward County called the Quest Center. And that was where she actually finished her career as an administrator at the, at the Quest Center. Um, you know, so it gave me a chance to really get to know folks out there who who are struggling with uh, with a lot of different problems. It makes me understand how fortunate I am and how important it is for me to serve others.
0: You know, I, I don't know if there is any feature, any characteristic that's more important, Joe, than uh, empathy. I think that's just such an important uh characteristic in life but i think as public servants it's an essential uh characteristic and 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 it's great that you got that uh because i think that's one of the dynamics that's going on in society you have those that are the haves and the Mm have-nots and the two often don't see each other and it's because of the lack of empathy and seeing people less fortunate so it's it, it i think that's a foundational principle thankfully that you received at home.
1: Absolutely, and it's something that I bring with me to my current role is just keeping in mind that we're here to serve everybody who is an eligible voter. And we have a number of folks in our community, a pretty large number of folks in our community here in Broward County that are living with disabilities, who are still eligible voters, they live with disabilities every day, and we have to do extra to, to make sure that we're catering to those folks and make sure that they have the same rights that everybody else has.
0: You mentioned West Point, tell us about that experience. You obviously did well uh, in high school uh, to get the opportunity uh, to go to West Point. Uh, how, how was that?
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you just sort of, it's almost uh, you know a big part of, getting, uh, of graduating from West Point is the fact that you go through that process to get in there in the first place. Uh, it's not like any normal college application process. It actually starts when you're in 11th grade You know, it's not just academic. They're looking for somebody who has already shown leadership, um, who's already taken on leadership challenges. As a high school student, they're looking for people that are physically fit and healthy, um, as well as uh, very smart. And then you have to go through that whole process of proving that you are all of these things. And then you actually have to get uh, a member of Congress to nominate you um, for a position at the academy. So it was a very long process that I went through that started in spring of my junior year of high school, and it finished up in February of my senior year. So it was almost a year-long process um, to actually get everything done that you have to get done just to get into West Point. Um, so it is a it's it's a forty-seven month experience. It starts in it starts about a month after you graduate from high school. You go off and you start at West Point, and you start off as a with uh, really no privileges whatsoever. So when you get to West Point, you have to walk like you're marching. You have to greet all the upperclassmen. Um, you have to sit a certain way, eat a certain way. You're limited on how many times you can chew before you swallow. There are just uh, a lot of things that um, that we do at West Point to sort of break people out of their you know, civilian mentality and teach them discipline and teach them uh, how to be a, a disciplined and successful military officer.
0: That sounds a little different than my freshman year at the University of Florida. It seemed a little, a little more structured, (laughs) but, but, you know, again, that is the United States Military Academy and, and, and discipline uh, is is a part of the success that I think people are going to appreciate as we go through uh, your life story. Is there any particular focus, you know, that you, do you get a major? Do you have a major uh, upon graduation as we do in typical college uh, education?
1: So yeah, it is a little bit different at West Point. Um, They do have you can they do have majors, but one difference about West Point is that it was founded to be an engineering school, and it has continued to be an engineering school. I believe there's there's always talk about potentially changing it and adding that that liberal arts education, strengthening that a little bit, and actually awarding a bachelor of arts. But at the time frame when I went through, you know, your only option was to have a bachelor science degree, so you did have to. Uh, take what was called an engineering track to actually um, graduate with that bachelor of science degree, and the engineering track that I decided to go on was the computer science, uh, the computer science program. So that's what I ended up doing. You know, all all cadets at West Point learn uh, about the military and have a certain curriculum that is set that is set to prepare you to be a military officer. So we all do that. But then there was also this other element where you learn um, uh, engineering uh, discipline as well. And for me, that discipline was computer science.
0: Joe, you went on and you served in the uh, U.S. Army, achieving the status of captain, am I correct? Yes, sir. And uh, what an honor. I mean, that's 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 a uh, pretty impressive accomplishment. You were a captain uh, of combat leaders. I mean, tell me what that what that means in
1: layman's terms. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I was a military officer for five years. Uh, The first part of that is when you first graduate from West and you go off and you get trained. What was really interesting about my experience was that I was trained to be a tank platoon leader. And then I went to Korea and I arrived at a cavalry unit just as they were turning in their tanks, as they were restructuring to become a more lighter style of cavalry unit. And what the cavalry units do is that they're responsible for reconnaissance, uh, basically going out and gathering intelligence on the enemy. So I was part of this organization in South Korea that actually we tr- what we trained to do was to go out to these training areas. We would go right up to the demilitarized zone in South Korea and we had training areas out there where we would conduct our exercises. It was an amazing place to be because uh, as opposed to anywhere else in the military where you train, in South Korea, you can actually go up and look and see across and see the uh, the potential enemy that you may face on the battlefield one day. There was this sense that there was a real mission. Uh, it was it was very real world um, for us. And the time I was there was incredibly interesting as well because there was this testing of the nuclear weapons, which one thing a lot of us know about North Korea is that they're probably the the nuclear power in the world that we are most concerned about. So they, they achieved that status of becoming a nuclear power during the time that I was there. And that was a very tense time because we felt as if going to war with North Korea was imminent over the fact that they had a nuclear weapon. It was always considered, um, it was considered unacceptable for North Korea. And it's still considered unacceptable for such a fragile country to have access to such powerful weapons. Um, they also started testing their intercontinental ballistic missiles while I was there. And that was also a huge threat for them to not only have nuclear weapons, but to actually have the capacity to have a missile that they could put a nuclear weapon on and have it reach uh, the continental United States is, is something that is just in- incredibly scary to think about. And we fully believed <laughs> um, at one point when they tested that first missile uh, or there was a missile test that took place uh in 2006 that we really believed that we were going to go to war over that because that was just the rhetoric that we were hearing from the president at the time and you know it was something that felt very very real to us at the and and it was which makes it a very interesting experience to be stationed there so i was actually promoted to captain at the end of my time in korea returned to the u.s and went to fort benning to the infantry school at fort benning which is also incidentally the time that my son was born. And after I finished the captain's course at Fort Benning, I was deployed to Iraq as an embedded leader with the Iraqi military. So instead of going over to Iraq with a large American unit, I was part of a small team of advisors that was then embedded with an Iraqi infantry battalion. And I spent a year living with the Iraqi military, fighting with them side by side for for a year. And then that was the culminating experience of my military career.
0: Wow. What an interesting career. Uh, I've never served. And and we take, I think, some time for granted um, the, the, the service that brave men and women such as yourself give to defend our country. But to be in South Korea and to go to sleep at night knowing the enemy is right across the line, uh for most people it'd be difficult to really rest. I mean how 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 do you handle that type of pressure-intense uh relations?
1: You know what's interesting is is that I think when um you know when I look back at it as as a as a 38-year-old, you know, it does kind of frighten me. But when you're in your early 20s, it's hard. And I think that's why we, you know, we rely on people in their early 20s to fight our wars for us uh, because you have a hard time believing that you're not invincible. Yeah, that's <laughs> So <true. laughs> no, I, I, I did not have a hard time sleeping at night. I actually loved, uh, loved, uh, what I did. And, uh, and, uh, and I, um, loved being in the mix and being part of something like that. And, uh, and, and it was really, ultimately it was a joy. I mean, it was, it was something that is something I look back on very fondly. I, I,
0: I laugh often because I grew up here in Fort Lauderdale, and I remember climbing up on top of the house. You get on the fence, pull yourself up on top of the house and jump down. And you had no fear. Now, at this age, <laughs> you know, you, you get up. One, I wouldn't get up there. Number two, if I was lucky to get up there, I certainly wouldn't jump down. Yeah. Uh, somehow, you know, we get wiser at the end. it's probably good because our bones couldn't handle the handle the leap uh, <laughs> that we do in our, our youth. Uh, but what a interesting uh, career. Your father was in the military. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, my father was in for 22 years. Um, you know, he he actually came in right after the Vietnam War, right on the tail end of the Vietnam War and then retired from the army um, just after the Gulf War. So he was in the army at an interesting time because it was a time when the focus was really on the Cold War. It was all about um, the U.S. versus the the Soviet Union. And we spent five years really. And for me, this was a time between uh, kindergarten and sixth grade that we were living in Germany. And um, we were actually there uh, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. So in 1989, you know, we were actually living right on the border with East Germany. You know, um, my father would go out and man one of the border stations where they would go out and kind of watch what was going on. It was a place called the Gap. Which was known at the time to be the most dangerous place in the world because that's where all of the Soviet Union's tanks would come across to invade, coming from Eastern Europe into Western Europe if they were to uh, actually invade and try to capture more territory. So, you know, it it was an interesting place to be even as a child because I, you know, it was funny learning about the Folded Gap in my high school history class and thinking, wow. I went to Fulda Elementary School, you know, wow. so, um, you know, uh, you know, th- this place that was considered the most dangerous place in the world, you know, had an elementary school full of American kids. And there were, you know, we were just living there in Germany and enjoying the culture and enjoying the life. And, and you know, and a lot of us, our fathers, and in some cases, mothers had, uh, you know, this critical mission that they were conducting every day while we were just going about our lives as kids.
0: And this is, you know, we're unfolding what I find to be just a very interesting journey. And when I said that at the beginning, I meant it. Uh, You've had a really interesting life. I'm a believer, Joe, that our life experiences weave the fabric of our lives. They become the foundation upon which we stand on. Uh, How does your military education, training, and service influence your outlook personally and professionally?
1: I believe that probably just growing up in a military family and then serving in the military as a young man myself um, gave me sort of this, what I would call maybe an innate sense of duty. Um, I I did reach a point, especially after being in the military for five years and spending most of that time overseas, um, having a particular experience with my son being born and three months later, I went to Iraq. Um, I I spent three months in training, 12 months in theater. So a total of 15 months away um, while my son was a very small baby. So I leave this little tiny infant and I come home to this walking, talking little kid. And I say to myself, "It's, it's 2009, our country's fighting two wars, there's no end in sight. I think I've done my part and now I need to be here for my son. So I decided to leave the military and I want to go into the business world. I want to, you know, start, you know, working for companies. And I, I landed job with a big uh, pharmaceutical distribution company, um, you know, wonderful job, wonderful company, and just didn't quite have that same sense of purpose that I had as a military officer. So I moved from sort of one uh, company, one, you know, one big management job to another within these big companies and I'm bouncing around and I'm looking for this sense of purpose that, just, that you just can't find in the private sector. Um, and, and that's really what led me to the point where I decided to run for office and specifically to say that I'd like to be an elections official and I'd like to be the one who is you know overseeing and protecting our, our, our election system here in Broward County was just that sense that, you know, that, that there needs to be uh, a greater mission um, that I'm focused on in order to, in order to be happy and in order to be fulfilled.
0: I read where uh, grandma Carrie, is that your mother's mother or your father's mother?
1: My mother's, um, actually my mother's, she's my mother's grandmother.
0: She says your great grandmother.
1: She is actually my great grandmother. Yes. She's my and Tell grandma. me about her. Wonderful woman. I mean, I, you know, I, and it's amazing because like I said, she's my great grandmother and actually she was with us long enough to uh, actually meet my son, uh, who was her great, great grandchild. But um, you know, she is somebody that we grew up knowing she actually had 17 kids. Wow. Uh, she lived in lived her life in Camden, Alabama, little city, little tiny town in Wilcox County, Alabama, uh, where she had 17 kids. And she just, you know, was just a very dynamic person. But she was also very active uh, as an advocate and was fighting for people to have rights. She came up at a time when it was virtually impossible in Alabama for black people to vote. Um, and, and you know, there were, you know, all these obstacles that were put in the way, you know, technically, you know, they were citizens and they had the right to vote, but, oh, you need to pass this test or you have to do this or that, and we're gonna make you walk. You know, there were always things that were done to minimize how many black people could vote. Um, because in that area, the black people were a significant part of the population. And you would end that system of white supremacy that was in place if you actually start letting uh, black people participate, then quickly they would start winning the elections and taking over those important offices, um, which is basically where we are today after a lot of fighting and a lot of uh, a lot of hard work done by people in my grandma Carrie's generation. But she was, uh, I mean, absolutely tough as nails. Um, you know, grew up in the country, raised 17 kids. So you can imagine the type of woman uh, that she was, just the type of person who really didn't take anything from anybody and uh, would, uh, you know, was always ready to, to fight and, and defend her rights uh, any way that she could.
0: That's that's incredible. 17 kids. The families were bigger in those days. I'm from a family of seven, but 17 yeah. is on a whole nother scale. I mean, that's a small, <laughs> small little army. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on our own uh, with your great grandmother. Uh, I understand that she was one of the first black women to vote in Wilcox County, Alabama. Is that correct? Yes,
1: yes, yes. yes. So when uh, when the uh, Voting Rights Act passed in the first election that came up right after the Voting Rights Act, she was up and she was the first one in line. There was uh, there was one polling station there in Camden, Alabama, for uh, for black people to go to and vote, and uh, and she made sure that she was. Uh, I think she was actually the second person in line. There was a man in front of her, so she was the first woman to uh, to vote there that day.
0: Did she pass on to you? I mean, you obviously uh, have e- elected to 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 serve our our county and state uh, in the election electoral process uh, as supervisor. Uh, Did you pick up any of that, that story that she shared with you, the importance of the vote? How did she deliver that to you? And what have you done with that as it relates to your son?
1: You know, what's interesting about it growing up is that we all learn about, or at least for my generation, we learned about these things, you know, in school and what was going on as young kids. So by the time, you know, I was old enough to really start asking questions, I was aware of the fact, but I think sometimes when you hear about these things in history class, you think it's ancient history. And you think it's something that happened so long ago that you couldn't possibly sit down and talk to somebody who actually participated in it. Um, You know, and then when I discovered that that was the case and that, you know, uh, you know, my grandma Carrie was, you know, part of this fight that she actually participated in it. And, um, you know, to me, it was, uh, you know, I just found it fascinating, you know, just to to hear uh, living history still with us and still able to talk to us. And I, You know, I was actually hoping that my son would be old enough to hear directly from her, you know, the story, uh, you know, about about those days. Um, But she did. She actually passed on when he was only a year old. So he didn't get a chance to hear it, but he definitely knows the story now and and has seen some of the pictures and uh, the things that we have, uh, you know, in our our family uh, uh, scrapbooks here.
0: That's awesome. Um, It's been asked, does the person find the moment or does the moment find the person? What is your take
1: on that? Wow, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, you know, for me, getting involved in politics, there was, uh, I would say, there was a moment that we all uh, experienced in 2016 um, that everybody reacted to in a different way. And for me, uh, you know, being at, although I was still working in, in corporate America, I was just until right after the, the primary election this year. Uh, I felt like I absolutely had to get more involved in my community, I had to do more. I felt like our country was in a crisis and and I couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore. So I did get involved, I first got involved through an organization called the New Leaders Council that a friend introduced me to. Um, So I did that in 2017 and that was what really started helping me start to build a network of uh, activists and people that were active in the community here in Broward County. And then like most people here in Broward County, I watched uh, what was going on with our elections office in 2018. And, um, you know, once uh, Dr. Snipes decided that she was retiring, I sincerely felt that there was uh, a need to have somebody with a technology background come in. And I thought to myself that there may not be um, anybody willing to run for office who has that technology background. It seemed... Uh, apparent to me that an elections official in this day and age needs to be somebody with a technology background because it's really about implementing systems and putting new systems in place. Um, So so that was what really urged me to say, I should throw my hat in the ring and see if the voters of Broward County agree that my background is the background that we need for our next supervisor of elections. And and, uh, ultimately that did work out because the people of Broward County were very receptive to it. People I talked, people I met, you know, I couldn't get to everybody. It's a big county, but all the people that I did get to, all the people I did talk to were immediately on board and did a lot and did everything they could to help me to help me win this election.
0: That's a success to have such um, a result in your first your first go at public uh, elected service. Uh, We must take a brief break to hear from our sponsor at this point in time. The law firm of Hallitzer, Petison & Schwamm is a proud sponsor of the Can We Talk 360 podcast. Our firm handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, catastrophic personal injury litigation, and workers' compensation matters. We pride ourselves in being advocates for justice on behalf of those who have been seriously injured. For decades, we've taken the lead in making your case our priority. It's who we are. It's who we'll always be. Hallitzer, Pedersen Schwamm, serious injuries, proven results. Welcome back. So Joe, let's talk about your plans, uh, as supervisor of the election. Uh, I want to, I want to gather from you what your vision is, uh, over the course of, of this tenure and, and beyond, uh, give me an overview and then we'll talk about it in 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 on each topic what's your overview your vision you've touched upon it a little earlier uh talking about technology being a a, a critical skill set in mm-hmm. the 21st century electoral process uh tell me what your vision is
1: yeah so well, what what I mean by that is just the fact that you know, we, we see the advance of technology and it's only speeding up. It's getting faster and faster, especially with COVID. So people are getting used to interacting with other, interacting with their government, interacting with businesses in a different way than they did in the past. So expectations are absolutely changing. And I think we all know that government agencies tend to be a little bit behind the rest of, uh, behind other institutions and in how they change and adapt. To, um, to new technology that comes on to the, to the market, new technology that becomes available. And my goal as supervisor of elections is to stay on the cutting edge. And the reason for that is that we, we need to make sure that we are bringing in the younger folks to actually vote and participate in our elections. And the younger folks are used to interacting through, these, um, through um, different platforms than the older generations are. So how do we, as an elections office, as elections officials, make sure that we're integrating these new systems that are available? So specifically what I'm talking about is communications, for one, is how do we meet the voters? How do we get information to the voters? Are we using, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, these um, these platforms that are very popular with people that are younger? People, you know, we can't continue to, you know, simply put an ad in the newspaper or Continue to run commercials on television because there's a huge segment of the population that we're not reaching if we communicate that way. So we have to communicate across the platforms that the voters are using, and we always have to kind of keep our ear to the ground to know where folks are so that we are communicating with them where they are. Um, so that's that's one side of it. There's the communication side of it. The other side of it is the actual um, the infrastructure of the elections office itself. Meaning the, the the equipment that we use to tabulate the votes and and to um you know determine, you know, to to get to collect the votes, tabulate the votes, and and um report that or report those votes. We need to make sure that we're using the latest technology and we need to make sure that we're putting the proper security protocols in place because we've reached a point where our enemies around the world see our election system as a vulnerability. And people who want to attack the United States of America, both from outside and even from inside, see that our elections, uh, our election system is a soft target that they can hit. And that just creates a new level of urgency for us to make sure that we are aware of the security threats that are out there and that we're putting the proper mechanisms in place to protect our system from those actors.
0: You've touched upon a number of, of critical uh... Uh, issues. And and it's just ironic that so many of these issues are hotly in the news uh, as as we speak. Uh, Tell us about your background with cybersecurity.
1: Sure. So my, you know, specifically, you know, my background was started when I was still at West Point and taking that computer science engineering track that I mentioned earlier and learning about cybersecurity just from that level. Now, during my time in the military, I was a combat arms leader. I wasn't an, an IT professional, but <laughs> when you when you study computer science at West Point and then you go out into a unit and um, uh, into a combat unit that is integrating new systems, at this time, this was when I was in South Korea from 2004 to 2007, was right when the army was updating a lot of their systems, moving from DOS-based systems into Windows-based systems. You've got a a lieutenant that studied computer science at West Point. That guy uh, immediately gets picked to take on the charge and lead the lead those efforts of transforming your units, um, uh, uh, you know, processes and systems. Um, So so I took that on um, almost everywhere I went throughout my time in the military of being the person who helped my the unit that I was in at the time sort of integrate new systems and upgrade and get used to uh, the new technology that was coming available to us. So so we did that. And then coming out of the military, I continuously worked in these technology-oriented businesses. The first company I worked for was a company called Medco Health Solutions. I worked in the world's uh, largest mail-order pharmacy. Uh, It was uh, basically a very um, new concept at the time of allowing people to order their medication online. And then I worked in this huge uh, facility that actually processed 10,000 uh, prescriptions every hour uh, while, while um, during my shift. And my role there was as the quality assurance uh, supervisor. And what that meant was that I was responsible for identifying problems if a problem came up anywhere in the process and tracking that down, determining the root cause, and then uh, applying a fix to make sure that that problem didn't happen again. Um, you know, from that position, I went on to more, but it was more sort of management and administrative type of roles in businesses that were heavily uh, technology-related, all the way to the point of my most recent position, where I was working with government agencies here in South Florida and helping them to actually put new systems in place to um, to increase their productivity and also increase their cybersecurity as well.
0: We, we know of the security breaches that have happened on the national to the federal government, how do we advance greater reliance on technology and at the same time protect our systems, even on the local level, uh, against infiltration from bad actors?
1: So, so what's really important is that we just increase awareness. I think part of the problem that that we have had that has allowed um, some folks to infiltrate our system, and I'll say, let me tell you specifically, about some things that have happened with local governments here in Florida. Um, you know, what we've seen is what's called a spear phishing attack, where basically somebody will um, maybe contact you or send you an email and get you to click a link and get you to give them your credentials by, by tricking you into thinking that you're on a government system when you're not. So they'll, they'll get your credentials and then they're able to log in and do whatever they want. Um, in some cases, what they'll do is uh, called, and it's something that has impacted local governments here in South Florida. It's called a ransomware attack, where they'll basically go in and capture all of the files. They'll they'll get gain control to your server, capture all of your files. In some cases, critical files that you must get back, and then they can basically name their price. Um, sometimes what they'll do is they'll just encrypt those files in a way that you're, you know, a very strong encryption that you won't be able to break, and say if you want this encryption broken, you have to give us a certain amount. And usually you have to pay them in Bitcoin so it can't be tracked. And then, you know, you'll pay this ransom in order to get your files back. Um, What's key is that, you know, there's always gonna be innovation in this space of how cyber attacks happen and leaders need to be aware. And it's not just for people that are cybersecurity professionals, but really to a certain degree, everybody has to be aware of the threats that are out there When a new threat is discovered, you know, chances are we, a local government in South Florida is not likely to be the first target of a new type of attack. So we can usually find out what's happening and stay current on what's happening in other places and then adapt our processes, Uh, educate our organizations about what those threats are so that we can defend ourselves from it so that it doesn't happen to us. You know, when we talk about the, you know, the recent attack that happened um, with our federal government it was a, a, a bit of a more novel type of attack but they did go after these sort of bigger targets and it gives us an opportunity to learn what happened there and what do we need to do to defend ourselves so that the same thing doesn't happen to us and that's and that's really what i think what i see is my role uh, as a leader in the supervisor of elections office that I need to keep my ear to the ground, know what's going on and make sure that I'm getting my organization ready to defend us so that we don't face the same kind of attack.
0: One of the um, as you were giving that response, one of the ideas that came to mind is that I believe there is a gap between what you all are doing on an everyday basis to make sure the system's integrity is intact and what we as Broward County citizens know, uh, that education, that communication that you spoke of a little earlier. Uh, we hear from you on eaves of elections, but there's many days in between. Yes. How do you keep us informed uh, on the everyday work of you and your team, uh, in between the moments of the election.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you that the work is constant and there's things that are very um, applicable to the community that we need community input on. I'll tell you right now what the office, the big projects that the office has going on this year, 2021, the biggest, most important thing that we do in odd number years is that we do what's called list maintenance where we actually completely review. We have 1.2 million of registered voters And basically anybody who has not voted in the last two cycles, we need to go through and figure out if they're still with us and if they need to remain on the voter rolls or if they need to be taken off. In some cases, these people may have passed away. They may have moved away. Um, There's a number of different things. And it's a a huge responsibility of our office to make sure that our voter rolls are up to date. In addition to that, we're actually um, preparing to uh, redraw the precincts because we just had a... our um, our census that happens every 10 years, the census just happened. When those census results come out, our state legislature is going to redraw the lines for the congressional districts in Florida. We may actually be taking on uh, one or two more congressional seats in the state of Florida. And then our legislature will have to redraw the lines of the districts, not only for the Congress, but also for the state Senate and the state House of Representatives. And then once they've redrawn those lines, we're also at the same time going to see the the county commissioners redraw the lines for their single member districts in Broward County. They're going to redraw the lines for the school board here in Broward County. And from there, they're going to go on and go down to the city level. And the cities, in some cases, cities have single member districts and they're going to redraw their lines as well. As your elections office, we take all of these new districts that have been created by these different entities and we lay them all on top of a map. And then we have to create precincts for people to vote in that make sense for those communities um, based on what districts they belong to at the city level, the county level, the state level and the federal level. So so this is a huge project that's happening in addition to the normal odd year list maintenance, we have this once in a 10 year um, uh, project that we have to relook our precincts and, and reset those precincts here in Broward County. And then on top of that, we have sort of, I would say, a once in a generation activity that's happening in that we're building a new facility um, uh, that our um, elections operation is going to move into in 2022.
0: And where's that facility going to be?
1: So that facility will be located um, just south of Commercial Boulevard and just west of I-95 in Fort Lauderdale.
0: As we talk about the new challenges to our, the threats to our electoral process from outside um, uh, sources, as we talk about people wanting to use technology to exercise their right to vote more and more, how do we address the debate that we're having in society as we speak? You have millions of people that believe that the presidential race somehow had some type of fraud involved. As extreme as some of these ideas are, we have to recognize that there are people out there that believe them. How do you as an election supervisor deal with those issues moving forward with technology that will likely bring more people into the process, but at the same time, maintaining the trust and integrity of the process so that our democracy will not be
1: disrupted. And and I'll tell you just in a word, the word would be transparency. Uh, Transparency builds trust. And you know, like I mentioned, we have all these huge projects that are taking place over the next two years between now and the next big election that we have. Um, And and to me, all these big projects, we're having an opportunity for us to build relationships with the community to get the community involved in understanding how we're reshaping these precincts, getting community input on what these precincts will look like, um, getting community input on on the the list maintenance process and how we're doing it, people approve of how we're doing it, because that's been a hot issue in the past. So we're using these different platforms that I mentioned earlier. We're using new platforms to make sure that we're reaching and communicating with all the voters in the community, We're explaining to them about the work that we do. We're communicating with them and making sure that they understand what we do and how we do it. And then we hope that through that process of just continuously communicating, that we are able to build a a, a tremendous amount of trust. That when it comes time and when the elections happen and when somebody from the outside decides to question our integrity and question whether or not we are doing the right thing, that... Um, you know, we have the trust of the community and the community looks to us and knows that we are, in fact, doing the right thing, that we are, in fact, uh, trustworthy.
0: One of the interesting features of our electoral process is that elections are controlled by state law. Uh, Elections are controlled by practices, even on the local levels. What we do here in in, in in Broward County may be different in some aspects from our neighboring counties. And certainly may be different from the panhandle of the state of Florida. The list maintenance process uh, that you, you've mentioned a couple of times. We've heard around the country where that process has been more toward purging uh, uh, in a voter suppression mode versus purging the list to take off those that have passed away, those that are moved, those that are no longer interested in participating in the process. How do we deal with that dichotomy? Uh, Real instances where politics has led people to use the list maintenance uh, process to lessen the votes for their opposing party. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, And when people see that, they lose faith in that particular needed exercise of maintenance. How are you going to deal with that?
1: Yeah, no. And I, I just think it's important that the community knows where you are coming from and knows what you what, what's in your heart, you know, and that's where, you know, that's why it's so important that I think this position be an elected position where you answer to the people that are, you know, the people that you serve, the actual registered voters in this community. Um, that, that's who I answer to. So to make sure that they understand what process I'm going through and that they agree with the way that we're approaching this, because you're absolutely right. There is a way to be very heavy handed with the list maintenance process and remove a lot more people than you should be removing. And then it, it, there's a way to approach the the problem with nuance and to actually, you um, make sure that you're actually only removing the people that you know for sure need to be removed. What some people fear, and depending on, you know, sort of what jurisdiction you're in, you have a greater fear of this, is that somebody's going to come along and and nitpick. So somebody's going to come along when it's time for an election, and they're going to find one or two people out of 1.2 million people who, who passed away six months ago or eight months ago. And how come you didn't catch this? How come this person wasn't taken off of the rolls? you know, believe it or not, uh, families do not call the elections office when their loved ones pass away. So we don't always know. But that becomes a very hot issue. There's certain there's just a segment of our society that is so keen on finding something wrong with the voter rolls and saying, we're going to find that. Oh, look at this. We found a, a person who, who passed away. So we, we, we got you. We proved it that there's dead people on the voter rolls. And, you know, and you just have to be prepared to explain to people that, hey, this, you know, we do continuously clean up our voter rolls. We do look at this. And now that we know this person's passed away, we'll remove them. But you got to understand that when you have one point two million voters, you know, you may not know immediately that somebody passed away and be able to remove them right away. So it's really so to me, it's about communication and transparency, making sure people understand what our processes are and how we do it. And if you have that transparency and if you're communicating with people, I believe that what happens is you build that trust. And then people, even if they hear something or somebody wants to you know, say something negative about you, they'll they'll discount that because they they trust you and they know that you're doing the right thing.
0: And you, you mentioned uh, an example of what we've heard so much uh, in the recent month is a gotcha type thing where somebody has found one or two people five or six or a hundred whatever the number may be Mm uh that should not have voted or some impropriety about the voting but that doesn't create the entire election to be fraudulent and 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 as we know um uh, is that it has to be a fraud that would change the outcome of the election if you lost right. by 10,000 votes 100 people doing something inappropriate didn't change the outcome
1: absolutely um, we, yeah
0: we don't <laughs> want that 100 and you know we're going to work hard to eliminate that 100 but just cuz you have 100 doesn't mean that the person that lost by 1000 10,000 100,000 votes somehow get a duel it's still a loss yes yeah. And, 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 and we're hearing we're hearing that dislogic, if you will, uh, more and more, uh, given what's going on on the national debate.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that I mean that and that, that that is so important. And I think what's important for people to understand is that the systems have only gotten better with time. So when we look at, you know, for whatever you can, you can you can pick out problems that you find in our system. What people really need to understand is it's better than it ever was before. Um, so yes, there are minor issues that occur, but it is better than it ever was before. And like you said, if you, you know, the, the, the minor issues that occur out there do not rise to the level of overturning an election. I, I, I always say that while we have to be, we have to be aware of uh, fraud that's going on and try to stop fraud from happening. It, the main thing people should keep in mind is that it doesn't make sense to commit fraud. Despite the high voter turnout that we had in this election, there are 80 million Americans who did not vote. If you really want to change the outcome of an election, get more people to vote because our margins are pretty slim, especially in a place like Florida. There are many people that you can reach out to and get them to go vote. Uh, And it's way easier to do that than it is to commit fraud. So really, you've got to keep that in mind. That you know that's why voter fraud is so incredibly rare. Is that we're just sort of at this point where there are easier ways to change an outcome. Go out and register more voters. Go out and convince more people to vote. That's the way to change an outcome. But fraud is not going to work, and it's ultimately going to get you in trouble.
0: Excellent point. You don't get in trouble by getting more people to vote. You get in trouble. Yeah, that doesn't get you in trouble.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: You you touched upon uh, the next topic, and that is access to the the polls. Mm -hmm. We we saw, given the pandemic, a huge percentage increase of uh, mail-in ballots. Do you think that we're going to continue to see those types of tools? I know we've had mail-in ballots here in Florida for quite some time. You probably, when you were in the military, you mailed your ballot in. Yes, Um, I did.
1: uh, Absolutely. I voted from Iraq by mail.
0: Yeah. So we've had that. Again, this is a misnomer. It sounds like it's something that just started uh this year but it's been happening do you see some of those type of features whether it's for convenience or necessity being a part of our uh citizens access to exercise their vote do you see that going forward
1: i I am concerned because of you know what i've seen in the news and what everybody's seeing in the news of how um, negative one side has gotten towards vote by mail I am concerned that you know that 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 there are harmful changes that happen, changes that ultimately suppress the vote. Um, our vote-by-mail system is not perfect, and there are things that need to be improved. The one big thing that we talk a lot about is the signature verification process. People are unsure. People want to, um, you know, people are worried. Like, did I sign exactly the same way I signed last time? And if I didn't, is my ballot going to be discarded? Um, and, and it's an important issue. It's important that people keep their signatures up to date on file. Um, and it is probably important that we continue to innovate and find better ways to make sure that we're protecting the integrity of vote by mail. Because vote by mail is important and people like it, people want it. And, and it is probably the best way for us to get the best outcome from our democracy. When, when you vote by mail, you have time to sit at home and sit at your kitchen table and and look up these issues, read about these issues and vote on your own time. People don't take that much time when they go and stand in a voting booth to make wise decisions uh, about how they're voting. So in a lot of ways, it just strengthens our democracy to have more people voting by mail. And the charge for people like me as an elections official is to find ways to make the process more secure and just to continuously improve. Like I said earlier, it's better than it ever was before, but that doesn't mean that we stop um, working towards finding ways that we can improve the system, make it better, um, and and make sure that, that um, we know that every vote is being cast by an eligible registered voter.
0: It, it seems, Joe, that the guiding question that we must answer is, are we true to the meaning of our constitutional right for each citizen to have the right to vote? Are... Are we more uh, interested in winning? And I I, I think it just comes to that. I mean, when you see the political uh, differences, whether it's political parties or politician versus politician, uh, uh, if people really want people to participate, some of them are fearful that if too many people participate, I may lose. So Mm -hmm. we start getting some pressure. You know, I I remember in the state of Florida uh, where there was even tinkering going on with uh, the early voting. And do we allow for voting on Sundays? Because some politicians were concerned with souls to the polls. And and we know who comes to the election on souls to the polls. That's a heavily African-American church-based campaign. Uh, So. When they start eliminating that, that takes us away from the hallmark of access to the votes. So, you know, we have to have that conversation and we have to get comfortable because you touched upon it a little earlier. If we want to effectuate a difference in our election turnouts, get more people into the process. Yes. Um, Not suppress certain communities from the process and that's a debate that was going on since great grandma carries the years yeah. and is still on, it's
1: still going um, on absolutely people is.
0: wanting to suppress votes
1: because because in some cases we actually still have laws on the books that come from those days and and uh we haven't quite dealt with that yet and the one thing i'm thinking of is the fact that we have our uh, what we call book closing, which happens 29 days before an election. Uh, a lot of people also refer to this as the voter registration deadline. And you know, and I and I mentioned before how technology changes, systems change, and people's expectations of how government operates changes. The younger generation of folks, nobody thinks they need to register for anything 29 days before it happens. You know, nothing takes that long anymore. Um, or anything even remotely close to that long. So we have this policy in place that says, hey, you have to be registered 29 days before. If you're a young person and you wanna go vote and you're in your twenties and you didn't realize that you needed to be registered, aren't you still an American citizen? Don't you still have a fundamental right to participate in the election and choose your leaders? Are, Are we not violating people's rights when we tell them they can't register to vote and participate in an election that's coming up in three weeks? you came in to register three weeks before the election and we have to tell you, no, you now lose your right to, to participate in this election because you didn't come in four weeks uh, and a day before uh, the, the election. Um, that's a good, it, that's it, a good point. It's John. not right. <laughs> it's
0: not right. And, and, and while you have that on the local level, you have that within a given state, if the person mm-hmm. was a citizen of the state next door, Georgia allows, you know, uh, voting. Some some of the states allow same-day voting. You, you, yeah, exactly. you register on the day, you can vote on the day. Absolutely. Uh, and you're voting, certainly on the national offices, for the same people, but we have differing systems that, yeah. that uh, folks have to face given uh, the state that they happen to reside in. Uh, right. It's something that we need to reckon obviously it's a huge challenge um uh but it's something we need to reckon let's uh we have a few more minutes and i want to address one more topic you've touched upon it but i wanted to highlight it and that is uh civic education when people hear civic education they think of civics in middle school civics in high school that's important and that may be a part of what you're talking about but are you talking about civics education on a broader scale
1: Absolutely. Yes. I I believe that, um, you know, when we look at sort of what happens in our we have we have municipal elections coming up in March for five cities here in Broward County. And we are not anticipating a huge turnout just from historical um, precedent that we've seen in the past. Anywhere from, you know, usually somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of the eligible voters will actually come out and participate. And what's remarkable about this is that, you know, we we may see, you know, we saw 75% of people show up to vote for president uh, a few months ago. But a few months later, we're going to see 15% show up uh, uh, for uh, to, to, to decide who their mayor is going to be. And, you know, who is closer to you and who impacts your life more on a day-to-day basis, the president of the United States or the mayor of your city? And I think a lot of people don't necessarily look at it that way. And I think it's very important for the voters to start to see that who is the mayor of your city does matter and that you should show up to vote for those local municipal elections um, and understand what it is that those folks do and how they impact things such as your, if you're a homeowner, your property values. And, and, uh, you know, these local issues really impact your bottom line uh, as a resident. And, And if people understand how local government works and how important these roles are, I think that we would see a lot more people actually turn out to vote in these local elections.
0: Those are, you know, that's such an excellent point, Joe, is because the day to day interactions we have with government is dictated not by the president of the United States is by the local officers. And if you look at the numbers of the number of people who vote on local elections, it is dismal. It's shocking. It is, you know, the people that are going to impact your life the most. Are the people who get into office with the least amount of votes, yes. and, and that's absolutely something that we need to address. Joe, we're almost reached the end of our time today, and it's time for what I like to call our hallmark question. Uh, the foundational principle of Can We Talk 360 is that hope for our collective future rests with all of society coming together as one humanity. What is that one bit of advice that you could leave with our listeners that they can achieve this vision?
1: I'll say the one thing that I think people should remember in creating this one, this one vision is that we have to believe and we have to strengthen our institutions. Um, our institutions uh, to maintain a democracy, to maintain the kind of society that we have to have. We have to keep in mind that it's about keeping strong institutions in place, and not allowing uh, individual politicians to tear down those institutions and take away our trust from the people who are actually uh, out of the limelight and doing the work day in and day out. Uh, We we need to trust our institutions and work towards strengthening our democracy that way.
0: Joe, I wanna thank you for joining us and sharing your vision. I'm personally truly excited to observe your leadership on these 21st century voting issues Uh, I think this interview shows us without a doubt that the moment found you. Uh, You're an incredible young man. You're an incredible uh, leader. And I think you're going to bring a generation uh, vision to this particular office that's going to serve Broward County and I think beyond for many years to come. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us see a little bit and hear a little bit about your journey.
1: Thank you, Gene. I, and I really appreciate you having me. I'm deeply honored to be the first guest. And, uh, and I know that uh, Can We Talk is going to be a, a great success. And I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Can We Talk 360. I sincerely hope that you were inspired to seize this moment in time and take real action towards change. Remember, all change begins with a conversation. Be sure to tune in every month for more fascinating discussions and motivational food for the soul. Please share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Can We Talk 360 and visit us on the web at www.canwetalk360.com.